Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table, where we discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Mikel Del Rosario, Cultural Engagement Manager at the Hendricks Center here at Dallas Theological Seminary. But actually, I'm not at Dallas Theological Seminary proper. If you're watching this or if you're just listening to my voice and I don't sound like I'm in a fancy recording studio, that's because I'm recording this remotely. Um, we're going to be offering you a number of uh, different ways to have uh, conversations here on the table, and this is one of them, this remote recording. So you're going to hear uh, more of these kinds of recordings as well. But today on the show, we're talking about Generation Z and how to share biblical truth with Gen Z. And I have two experts who are joining me here from sunshiny Southern California. And uh, they're joining me via Zoom. First guest is Sean McDowell, my friend Sean. He is a associate professor of apologetics at Talbot School of Theology at Biola University, my alma mater. And uh, Sean, so good to have you back on the show. Hey, Mikkel, it's a treat. And use that friend, that term friend wisely. We go back a couple decades to Biola at the same time. So just super proud of all you're doing uh, in life and here at the table as well. Well, thanks so much. And second guest is Jim Wallace. Jim is a cold case homicide detective who's also an adjunct prof at Biola uh, teaching apologetics. Thanks for being on the show, Jim. Glad to be here. I'm kind of looking at that door behind you, Mikhail. I'm wondering who's going to walk in through that door at some point in our conversation, right? You know what's going to happen. It's just a matter of who. Well, uh, I do have a, a Gen Z kid of my own who is playing Xbox in the next room, and I told him not, not to be too loud today, but we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> it could be him who walks through that door. But uh, I want to start out just by talking a little bit about your background in youth ministry. Um, you know, somebody who's a, a cold case homicide detective um, is not typically associated with doing youth ministry, but you do yeah. work with youth quite a lot. Tell us a little bit about your background in youth well, so I, I got, when I got saved, I was older, you know, I was 35. My kids were maybe six and eight at the time. And we were not church folks. We didn't know anybody who went to church, but we were experiencing this all for the first time. So I ended up sitting in my kid's class. And then of course, if you do that long enough, somebody's going to ask you to lead it. And I was asked to lead the class and I didn't know anything about Christianity. Right. But they said, I got this curriculum, you know, just stay a few pages ahead of the kids. You'll be fine. I said, okay. Well, ultimately, I just followed my kids up as they got older. Mm -hmm. And then I attended Golden Gate Baptist uh, Theological Seminary. I was going to get become a pastor, ended up with a degree in, in a master's degree in theology. And uh, I was my kids' youth pastor by the time they were in high school. And that's really where I experienced the most robust and fun and engaging ministry. Because I was a lead pastor after that for six years. And I had an older group, I mean, like college age by that time. And... Um, to be honest, the, the best and the most fun time I had, engaging time I had, even the most thoughtful time I had as a leader was in youth ministry because I was constantly being challenged by students and having to stay just a couple of pages ahead of them, you know, when they mm -hmm. ask these mm -hmm. kinds of questions. And so that really is where my background was. And that's about what I was doing. And not like there at that time, I was definitely working as a detective. I didn't leave my day job. As a matter of fact, when I got hired by that church, I said, I'll do this for free if you let me hire two 20-hour interns. Hmm. They said, yeah. So I said, okay, well, now we got a team. Or before, we just had one person. So this team, I learned how to do youth ministry, and I was still handling cases. And back in those days, <clears throat> I was also part of the fresh homicide team. So you would call, if you have a homicide today, I'd have to say, oh, sorry, God, I was in church so many times. Hmm. 
when I get called out, my wife would say, can we please sit by the door? Because it's embarrassing to have to leave from the back of this big church and go through everybody to get out of here when you get called. Hmm. But, um, you know, it, it does happen. So, I, so that's how I kind of juggled both of those professions. Okay. Well, cool. Thanks for sharing that with us. Sean, you teach college students at Biola, but uh, before that, you also taught high school. Tell us a little bit about your background in youth ministry. In some ways, my background in youth ministry has been my whole life because I have a mom and a dad, especially a dad who's been speaking, researching, focusing his whole ministry on the next generation. Mm-hmm. So I've seen it from the bottom up, although I didn't really plan to go on some kind of youth ministry until really I was in college. And it turns out I was a youth pastor for a year in the inner city LA at a church called the Dream Center and then taught high school Bible at a Christian school for a decade full time. Came on at Biola about eight years ago, and one of my questions was to my boss, Craig Hazen, who you know, I said, can I still teach one high school class? Because I love it, and that's really where my heart is. So I've been teaching that one eight years part-time, and now I've got two Gen Zers of my own. Hmm. And even today at Biola, probably half of my speaking is to Gen Z. I just finished yeah. a book for students, and the next couple weeks, I'm starting my next one for high school students. So Really, this is kind of my passion that I spent a lot of time thinking and really just focusing on. Mm-hmm. Well, tell us a little bit about, um, let's think about who Gen Z is. Jim, if you were to just give us a quick um, primer, like who is Gen Z in terms of ages and what are some distinctives we see in that generation? Let's split this up. Sean and I can both do this. I, I think, first of all, the age group is typically going to be like junior hires uh, through maybe the first year or so, maybe two of college. If you've got a high schooler or a junior hire right now, you are dealing with Gen Z. You already know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, my kids now are older. They were millennials when I was in youth pastorate. And, and now, like like Sean, we're kind of uh, get the privilege of teaching Gen Z high schoolers. And, and of all the surveys, and we've looked at these surveys, we have, we have examined all the surveys and have had experience ourselves with this age group. So when you ask us to give you a list of attributes of the age group, we, we, we kind of like agree on something. We kind of blended our two lists together. But I'll just start off, and, and Sean, you can follow. Uh, I'll just start off with the one most common attribute, that if you were to go online and, and look for attributes of Gen Z, you'll probably find that the most common attribute is that these are digital natives. In other words, unlike me or my, even my millennial kids who came to this technology in high school or later, uh, this generation was born with this. We immigrated to this technology. They have been here all along, and this is all they know. And it changes dramatically the way they perceive the world and how they perceive each other. So just to begin, that's one of the most common attributes you will see in almost any survey. But, Sean, you can take it from there. Yeah, I think that's right. That's kind of like the funnel, so to speak, that affects everything about how they see the world. And I kind of see it in two big categories. Number one, it affects their belief system. So here's a generation that has had what they want, when they want it, how they want it, where they want it, just one click away. With music, with food, with entertainment, contacting their friends, they're constantly connected and they expect this. Unlike other generations, even when I text someone, the back of my mind is like, wow, I can contact them instantly. I don't forget that. This generation expects that. It's the air they breathe, so to speak, and the water they drink. But what happens is this teaches a generation what to expect about the world. So rather than thinking there's an external reality out there that I have to conform myself to, technology teaches, and I use that word intentionally, it teaches this generation to think they can conform reality to their beliefs and their wants. So it's no coincidence that we have 
so much of talk about identity today mm-hmm. when we think we can tailor the world to ourselves. It's no coincidence that the word in 2016 was post-truth because truth implies some external reality I conform myself to. Right. Now, we could talk about that forever, but there's a belief system component, and we're seeing a lot in this generation who are post-Christian. Not that previous generations were perfectly Christian, that's not my point, but in terms of the secular worldview encroaching and increasing in the way young people think, we see that, and I'm not blaming it on the smartphone, but that's been a huge factor in them shaping them. The second thing that smartphones do, back to Jim's point about them being digital natives, it also affects them relationally. We have seen a spike when it comes to loneliness, and depression and this whole COVID thing, I'm waiting mm-hmm. for a lot of the stats to come out the next three, six, nine months. I think we're gonna only see those components increase. So it affects mm-hmm. their thinking and it affects them on a relational level. In fact, one of the good things about COVID, my daughter who's 13 has been Zooming and FaceTiming her friends, but there's this yearning for physical contact. I just wanna be with my friends. Mm-hmm. I think in some way a positive out of this that we can play on is help young people process and say, look, God has designed us for more than just mental interaction as powerful as that is, but for physical flesh and blood relationships. So in sum, their worldview is shaped and also their relationships when we look at Gen Z. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a bunch more that we could talk about, and we've got a list of like nine or ten of these attributes in the book. Yeah. But, that, but what Sean just said is so foundational. I, I got a call last week from a prosecutor who I've known for 20 years, and his daughter is 17, and she encountered a problem, and she just wanted to talk to somebody about it. Now, this prosecutor is not a believer, but for some reason, he said, I want my daughter to talk to you. So I got on the phone with her. I've known her for a since she's like a baby, so I've known her for a long time. And so I, I just want to hear what she had to say. Could you imagine a world? A, a dystopian future world in which your very thoughts were always broadcast from your forehead, like that old skit we used to have. There was a comedy skit about this years ago, where like kind of like, like liar, liar. You cannot. Everything that you're thinking is available on a screen mm. scrolling in front of your head. Not only that, everything you ate today, everything you did today, everything you did last week, and you have no choice on it. It's just scrolling on your forehead. Can you imagine this might make life a little difficult, especially in a time right now where the cult- culture is so heated? over issues of justice, right? Mm-hmm. That your thoughts about this, your true thoughts are on display on your forehead. That would be a difficult world to navigate, I think. And this is the world that Gen Z has chosen to live in. Because with social media the way it is, there's an expectation every day that's met that I'm gonna know everything there is to know about my friends in real time, what they did today, what they're thinking, what they value. And what she experienced mm-hmm. was, hey, I didn't say anything about what's happening in culture right now related to race relations. And not that I don't have an idea, but I just chose not to say something. And that, of course, was perceived as a statement in itself. Mm -hmm. And this is what's happening with all of our young people is that there's this expectation. Now, what this means, I think it develops two things. Number one, it develops a certain level of insincerity. Like, I'm going to post stuff just so you'll get off my, my case about it. But to be honest, I don't really affirm it. I'm just posting it to kind of check that easy box, right? Mm-hmm. And, and we see this in, amongst all levels of culture. We see it at every age group. But imagine if you were raised. So, for example, at 58, if I decided, you know what, I'm done with social media. I'm taking a break. I don't think many people would notice, okay, or care. My friends certainly I, I would notice, say, Jim, just so you would know. <laughs> I'm there for okay, you, buddy. You. <laughs> well, I know you would notice, Sean. But, but for the most part, I don't think my like people my age, especially the cops that are my age, 
or the people I work with in law and the, 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 the attorneys, and they're not going to even care. Okay. But this 17 year old was perplexed on what to do next because she didn't feel like she could just retreat from this. It'd be like retreating from existence because for her, her existence had always been mir- uh, um, kind of married to her online persona. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is a whole nother level of, of, of interaction that we have to consider as, and, I, and to be honest, you may not be thinking about this if you're a Gen Xer who's raising a Gen Z, because that's not your experience. Mm-hmm. But, but she felt, and, this, and her dad just did not get it. And he can't understand why, just do what I would do. Well, no, unfortunately, you're from a different generation that has a yeah. different view of social media, and you can't just do what your dad and would do. So, that, that's one of the is, reasons, Jim, that I think we're seeing so much uh, anxiety with this yeah. generation, is mm-hmm. they're fretting about climate change, they're fretting about racism. What do I say? What do I not say? Everybody's watching. Am I being left out? It brings so many issues that we can deal with as adults to a degree, but when you're mm-hmm. 12, 13, 15 years old, it yeah. can lead to the way you said, Jim, I think it's right, a kind of paralysis in many young people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's Instagram where it didn't happen, right? Yeah, yeah. I, 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 this is so true, right? Like, it, it didn't happen. I was like, I somehow document it in just the right way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and so I think that's, that's something we have to kind of consider as we move forward. And we're talking mm-hmm. to this generation because, like, like, like Sean said, the ability to craft your own reality has its upside and its downside. The downside is now that she felt like all she needed was somebody my age, her parents' age, to say, I completely understand where you're coming from. Mm-hmm. And she was just relieved to have somebody say that she was understood. And this is mm-hmm. one of the things we tried to do in this book, is we know this comes down to how much do you, as an adult, love this generation? And are you willing to do to have a multifaceted kind of a multicolored love for your kids. That's mm-hmm. come, it's a lot of different elements of the palette, right? It's about loving them enough to train them, to understand where they're coming from, to actually know enough about them because it's relationship married to truth claims that makes all the difference. Yeah. You know, we, Daryl Bach and I have been doing a series of zoom calls with a, a youth ministry over here since, since we all got shut down or, you know, had the shelter in place and we asked them, what are the things that you're feeling right now? And uh, a lot of them said lonely, overwhelmed, anxious, exasperated, and angry. I mean, things that like we all feel, but, but you see this so much in, in Gen Z who um, are just good. They're going through something, you know, we're all going through something unprecedented, but to be a teenager and going through this right now is just amazing. What are the, some of the primary reasons? Um, actually, Jim was mentioning the book and I didn't hold it up yet, but we have you guys on the show because you wrote this book on we'd have you on the show anyway because we like you guys but you just so happen to be people who wrote this book so the next generation will know preparing young christians for a challenging world and so we're talking about how can we help gen z and uh, prepare them for this challenging world we know there are a lot of uh, gen zers who are leaving the church sean what do you think is the the key reason that gen z is disconnecting from the church I think there's reasons, not reason alone. And I think, I mean, if I had to sum it up, I would say at its heart, it's a worldview issue. And by worldview issue, I mean a a belief of the heart that expresses what I think about the world. And in many ways, we're raising a generation that doesn't know how to navigate culture and the world Mm -hmm. from within their Christian faith. We give them shallow answers. It's emotion-filled disconnect their faith from what it means to actually live. And so they go through the motions 
And then eventually when they're really tested and get out of the home, it reveals the lack of a faith that was never there. So I think there's this deep worldview component. Some of this is apologetics. Some of this is good theology. Some of this is just Mm -hmm. learning to think Christianly in a world that we could argue is increasingly non-Christian and post-Christian, in some ways anti-Christian based on what we believe. The other side of that is there's also a huge relational piece why young kids leave the faith. So in the book, Jim and I uh, cite a study from a book on uh, faith and faith and families from 2013 by Vern Bengston, who's at USC, and this is with Oxford Press. And they studied over four generations uh, from great-grandparents down to great-grandkids, faith transmission during this time, 3,500 people. And they basically said across faith practices, the number one factor that would shape why a young person stays in the faith and or leaves on the reverse is a, quote, warm relationship with the father. Hmm. Father. Now, that's not to say the mother is unimportant. Last I checked, when a kid is born, a mom is there. The dad just tends to be more of the wild card. That's reality. But there's something powerful about relationships in the body of Christ, but with a father and teaching kids how to navigate reality. So if one or both of those are missing, the chances skyrocket that a kid is going to walk away from the church and or their faith. Hmm. And that's a, that's, a, that's a statistic that is so easy. Look, that's from 2013. That's seven years ago. But it represents something that's transcendent of time. If most people globally believe what they believe Primarily because their parents believed it. That's the number one indicator of what you're going to believe going forward. Did my parents believe it? That, that sounds crazy. But this is why some faith groups will actually grow on the basis of biological reproduction. Mm-hmm. Because if you've got six kids, you're probably five or four of them are going to believe what their parents believed. Okay? Now, so what happens is this becomes an exponential problem for us going forward as Christians. The fewer Christians we have in the next generation most importantly means we have the fewer Christian parents to raise up another generation. And if they bought into a secular view of children, they're probably having fewer children anyway. So as we go forward, this becomes an exponential problem because we even have fewer Christian parents to raise up the next generation. And so I think that is why we're going to see these numbers probably in this trajectory. It wouldn't surprise me anyway. And again, what we're talking about is not necessarily that people, uh, young people aren't moving toward even agnosticism or atheism. So as the numbers increase, right, and less young people are identifying as Christians, they're falling into that category of religious nuns, people who have no religious affiliation. Mm -hmm. Almost directly, I mean, if you're 1% drop in Christian identity, you see a 1% increase in the identity of no affiliation. Meanwhile, the statistics for agnosticism and atheism pretty much hover around the margin of error. Mm -hmm. So if you look at that and see that over the last 20 years, you still have young people who believe there is a supreme power or a supreme being or something that's bigger. That They believe in something that's they just shaped God in their own image because they've been raised in a world, as Sean talked about, that has taught them to shape everything in their image. I have the ability to select even what news I want to listen to today. I can find something on the spectrum that I already agree with and just mm-hmm. plug into that and isolate myself from every other transcendent worldview. Well, that's what we're kind of thinking we're up against as we uh, talk about Gen Z and how technology has shaped the next generation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Now, you guys have a strategy in the book for people who are training uh, Gen Z and teaching in church settings, in uh, Christian school settings, even for parents. Uh, one of those strategies is called Two Whys for Every What. And uh, Sean, could you help us understand what that is? You know what, Jim, this was your idea. I got to give you full credit for this. I could explain it, but you came up with this concept. So take no, it away actually, on this one. I may have, this is how I did it in youth group, but you guys were talking about before I even did it in youth group. I think you did a book with, with Josh that talks about like 10, um, mm -hmm. like ancient uh, questions. That, I forget what it's called. I talked to Josh yeah. about this on stage. What was it called, that book? It's called The Unshakable Truth. Okay, so Unshakable yep. Truth, basically, we've just, I've just taken the ideas without unknowingly of Unshakable Truth and distilled them down to three questions. So what I would say is, for every what proclamation you make, what does the Bible teach about this? What did Jesus say about that? What is this? X, wherever the X is. You want to provide two Ys. Why is it true evidentially? Mm -hmm. And what I always mm -hmm. say is, we want to be able to explain why it's true from both books of, of, of God, from the book of Scripture, because we want to show how the special revelation of God in Scripture makes the case for this, but also the book of nature. So we can show, you know, Romans 1, Psalm 19, the idea that we have enough evidence from just nature. So if I'm somebody who's still skeptical, I can show you that the Bible actually describes the world the way it really is, because both books are the book. And this is what I think the entire scientific project is. It's as Kepler said, the idea that man can discover the words of God in the book of nature, thinking God's thoughts after him. That idea is very powerful. I think young people are being persuaded by things online where people are saying, well, you know, the science demonstrates this. This is the scientists say, well, we need to be able to show that the scientific world, the realm of, of naturalism, really, this is God's world. And if it's true here, you'll find it to be true over here. And then the second why is simply, okay, so you've now demonstrated in some way why you think this is true, but why should I care? I mean, I get it to you 58-year-old nutjobs who are interested in theology. It might be interesting to you guys, but hey, I don't care about that. It has no impact on me. If we can't help our young people to see how this is relevant to the lives they're living, it answers the questions they're raising with their social media. When a 17-year-old calls you and say, what do, what do I do now? You want to be able to show that it turns out that issue you're talking about on Instagram is described from thousands of years ago in a book that describes you the way you really are and your friends the way they really are and your interaction the way it really is. And that will help our students to see that, yeah, it, I can be interested in this. Because like the, we've talked about in the book, and I forget who first said this, but apathyism probably is the biggest challenge to theism, not atheism. Especially, you know, Sean and I started, we, we first started partnering. I never wrote a book until Sean asked me to write a book. And we did that on a trip to Berkeley. But when you take students to Berkeley, I kind of thought, you know, what was it, almost 20 years ago when we started doing these things, things 17 years ago, hey, we were going to encounter strong atheism. Not really. What we're going to encounter most of the time is just apathy. Students on campus, maybe groups on campus are, are strongly uh, you know, atheistic, some groups. But generally speaking, students were like, eh, don't, don't really care. <laughs> you know? Apathetic so you about religious people. issues. Yes, on religious That's issues. That's the key, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So we have to kind of help show them why they should care. And that, that's the heart of this, Mikkel, is that it's not enough to just tell kids the Bible says so, because this right. is a generation with an entirely different authority structure. Mm -hmm. uh, we want to show why it's true, why it matters for their life, and why God gave this command in the first place. Then they can start to live it out, and I think it ultimately becomes conviction. 
Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You mentioned your trips to to Berkeley. Um, Explain a little bit about what those were and, and, you know, what are some other ways to involve students beyond just, you know, speaking to them on a stage? Yeah, I think you want you talk about this, uh, Sean, because yeah, we sure. met doing these trips. This was first Jim's idea when he was a youth pastor, just said to Brett Kunkel, hey, why don't we just take students to Berkeley, the secular place, get challenged. It became a trip. Two or three years into this, we started partnering. And the idea was, and this is one of the, thing, one of the reasons why I asked you to do the book with me, Jim, is because you bring this perspective from law enforcement, your training, into youth ministry and parenting. And the idea was it's not enough to just teach we need to train. So when you train for a sporting event, you have something on the calendar and you don't want to get embarrassed and you want to win and get ready for it. So if we have in six weeks or six months, we're going to Berkeley, kids are thinking, I'm going to have somebody challenge my faith. I'm not going to have Jim or Sean or Raquel there to to defend me. I'm going to be on my own with another student. I better get ready. So it creates a sense of urgency. And the idea just being that every year at at our Christian school, we probably go every other, every two or three years and then do other kinds of trips is we go up there with a group two days. Jim, you've done trips that are five or seven days, and we bring in atheists, we bring in Gnostics, we brought in homosexual activists, we've had professors come in, and we just teach our students how to engage with people thoughtfully, ask good perceptive questions, and just love on somebody. We go out in pairs and meet with students. We've met with atheist groups. We also meet with a lot of Christians on campus and talk about how do you maintain your faith on campus. Now, these trips are some of the most impactful things you can do with students. And we have an entire chapter in the back of the book how to do this. But we strongly don't recommend somebody listening going, great idea, let's take a group of students to Berkeley next week. Both of us made a lot of mistakes doing this and learned the hard way. So we want you to have the wisdom how to do it. But here's the spirit of the idea. I was with my kids in a, we were up at, at Hume Lake probably four or five summers ago. And there was this big stand of Jehovah's Witnesses. And I was walking by with, with a pastor of mine friend of mine and his kids started walking towards the booth and my kids did and he said to his kids he goes no don't go there we don't want to read that stuff i said to my son i'm like yeah you're interested go get it let's talk about it so he goes and picks it up and he's interested what is this so he's interested he wants to talk gave me a chance to talk to my son who's 10 and 11 and shows him i'm not afraid of other ideas and the pastor at that time was like wow i just hadn't approached it that way so part of the heart of what we're trying to do in this book is we've got to just in different ways push kids out of their comfort zone, Mm -hmm. get them into the game, practicing and living this stuff, not just show up at church, study 30 minutes. That could never counter once or twice a week, Mm -hmm. all the messages they're getting from a secular culture nonstop. That's not going to work. So we're trying to raise the bar for anyone who loves this generation. But ultimately what's unique about the book is there's also a lot of real practical ways to do this. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. 
I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. Well, let's think about this for a second, Mikhail. You're getting ready to write your dissertation for your PhD. And I'll guarantee you that having to write that and having a deadline in which you must produce it will create in you not only a sense of urgency, but also a sense of interest that you wouldn't have on that topic if it's just like something you're studying on your own. Or if it's just something you can actually have a teacher in a class just to give you. In the end, it's you having to do every training day in a first responder's life is broken into a classroom session in the morning usually, and in the afternoon you do it. Mm-hmm. Now, I'll tell you, for example, let's say you're doing pursuit course driving. We have to do this every two years. We have to get reevaluated and recertified to drive fast cars. Well, the morning is going to be, you know, charting this, the course and talking about how you accelerate out of turns and how you seven, eight, nine break into turns and how you hit the apex of the turn. It's all very kind of geometry. Right. And everyone is, you could be like, you know, no, but people are actually paying attention. You know why? Because at, after lunch, you're going to have to get in a pursuit car and a training instructor is going to try to out chase you. He's going to, he'll be <laughs> chasing that guy. And, and you're going to, you don't want to knock over any cones and you want to stay within a car's length of this guy through the entire pursuit. And if you don't, all of your co-working cops who are brutal, okay are going to mock you mercilessly for the next two years because you didn't do that last time we trained. That, that stress, that performance stress, it creates a different structure in the morning. We're all like paying attention, right? Because we want to get any, any little thing we can get that can make us better in the afternoon. Same thing happens with students. When they know they have to do street evangelism with a group that maybe has a certain uh, different view, for example, on theology, we take them to Salt Lake City or to an Islam trip or to the university, they're actually paying attention during the instruction part of this because they're afraid of being embarrassed in the performance part of this. Mm-hmm. And by the way, these are not just miserable performance-oriented kinds of trips. These are the kinds of trips that our group systematically left all of the board sports that we typically do in Southern California, you know, surfing camps, Mm. snowboard camps, wakeboarding camps, skateboard trips. They let those go on their own and exchange Mm. them out for these because they were so powerful. Wow. Wow. That's a special kind of trip when someone gives up, you know, Huntington Beach surfing for uh, (laughs) going to do evangelism at, you know, at Berkeley or or, uh, BYU. Well, um, in the book, you had this acronym for train. Would you unpack that a little bit for someone thinking what's the difference between training and teaching? Just real quickly, the T is for testing and no one does this better than Sean. No. So when I say test, what I mean, we have to show young people what they don't know before we begin, because if you Mm -hmm. don't do that, it actually incentivizes their study because they realize, oh, that was uncomfortable. So if you can bring in a Mormon bishop who'd be willing to work with your group and, and talk, and great. If you can bring in an atheist professor, if you can't, though, if you know enough and, you're, and you have a certain amount of humility, and that's why I say Sean does this. I don't know, I don't know anybody who is more, has more humility than Sean in this area. And his online, you can go on YouTube and see, I just posted one on my uh, uh, Twitter feed yes, two days ago, um, one of Sean's uh, atheist role plays, where he's, he's playing the atheist, for, and he tells him up front that you know who I am, then he plays the atheist, and trust me, it's powerful. 
I have been with him a number of times when we've done this uh, together, and I will tell you, it's powerful. And that test reveals to young people what they don't know. Next, the R is we're simply raising the bar, requiring more of your students. We typically require a lot of our students in all kinds of other areas in high school, even on their volleyball, we got a coach and a tutor and you name it, we got them an IB and we got them in AP classes. Then it comes to spiritual things and it's like, well, just go to your youth group and that's good enough. Really? They can study at a college level on everything else, right? Well, maybe it's time to raise the bar over here. Three is the A, T-R-A, is to arm them with something that helps them to make the case. We don't put uh, first responders in the field without respirators and other things that first responders have in the fire department or without equipment that we wear as police officers. We arm them. And a lot of that's going to be about, number one, showing them what the worldview is. They have to be biblically literate. And two, helping them to defend it, some, some apologetics. And three, exposing them to what the other side has been saying. I want them to hear that from Sean and I before they ever hear that on a college campus. The I, T-R-A-I, is to, this is the thing that changes everything. It's involving students in the battlefield. Uh, and I hate to call it a battlefield. Um, so when I first wrote this years ago, you know, 15 years ago, I really saw it as a, uh, in some ways, a spiritual battle. But I think that language can be divisive. And what we're really saying is, have we but created it's in a scripture too? For there are, you know, Second Corinthians ten three through five. We yeah. are in a spiritual battle. Yeah. But you're right. We just want to hesitate from saying it's us versus them, and we're trying to destroy people. Yeah, right. So, like, I think that's so hesitation. But we tear but, down but, arguments, not other people. No, yeah, exactly. Exactly. We can definitely so, make a, 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 a keep going armor of God. Right. We can yes, make a case yes. for this language. But I almost feel like this is not about me and, and Sean being um, afraid to use biblical language. It's just we want to maximize our persuasiveness with a culture that might see us a certain way. That's all it is, right? So yeah. I would say to other Christians, yeah, we are going to take them to the battlefield. But if I'm talking to somebody on the outside, I'm going to say, hey, right. set a challenge. A test is a challenge, not a battle. Mm -hmm. Any test that's on the calendar causes you to study before you get to that test. And that's what this comes down to. Have you calendared the appropriate challenge for your young people so that you can turn your conversations into preparation for that challenge? And finally, the N is can you nurture? Because what you're going to discover along the way is lots of bumps and bruises. If you've ever watched the MMA, the guy whose arm is lifted at the end has probably also got a cut and a gash and big swollen eyeball and you know his shoulder has been kicked out of place. And he's the winner. Okay, so, so there's times when you're going to be engaged in these challenges, and you're going to come out and feel like, wow, God used me. But you're going to have to have a cut man in the corner who can help close that thing so you can get back on the field, right, and get back in the fight. So a lot of it for us, that's why this book we think is unique in that sense, is that we have not separated our love for young people in the context of relationship from any of these strategies. Every chapter starts with how you love kids in a different way, a different shading of, of our love for young people, and how that will change. And by the way, just let me say this. I think Sean and I felt like we were afraid that we were going to create a resource that, number one, would put shame on the hearts of parents who feel like, oh, I never yeah. did any of this stuff. Mm, yep. Not our intent. Or two, would give you a list of 100 things now you got to do. <laughs> not our approach. What Sean is really good about in the book is offering opportunities that you can leverage in the same amount of time you're already doing something. But we're just going to change your approach just slightly 
So that with no additional time or effort, you're going to have a more productive outcome. That's what this mm -hmm. book hopes to do. Mm -hmm. If I can jump in and just piggyback on that, if you heard this acronym train, you might sit there going, oh my goodness, I'm not doing any of this. This is overwhelming. But these principles, as you read in the book, you realize here are small tweaks that I can make. So mm -hmm. we're done on this call. I've been having a lot of conversations with my family and my kids about, about race and how we respond. And afterwards, I thought, you know what? I need to get my son out of his comfort zone. So we call up a friend who's, who's black and say, can we sit down and hear your story? We want to talk to you. We want to hear your experience. And just pushing my son out of his comfort zone a little bit into the game of like, let's practice listening. Let's practice empathy. Let's learn and be humble. These are small ways we can do that are opportunities if we just jump on them. That's what we're trying to equip parents with in the yep. book and anyone who cares about this generation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really like how you wrap the whole thing up in the context of love and relationships. And I went to a, a PDYM youth ministry thing once when I was a youth pastor in San Francisco, and it was a saddleback actually. And there was a guy who, uh, uh, well, I'll say who it was. It was the former drummer for the Supertones. And um, he was God. doing... Oh. He was doing youth ministry. Dude, you just dated yourself when you said yeah, super right. tones, right? right. Like, everyone's going super tones. Like, what's that? <laughs> well, anyway, he did a presentation on how do you do youth ministry in the, in the shadow of Saddleback. And it was awesome that Saddleback actually let him do a talk at PDYM on, you know, how does he do that? But it's, it's relationships. It's the same way that Saddleback does youth ministry in the shadow of Disneyland. If it's pure entertainment, Disneyland will win every time. But yeah. if it's relationships, guess what? Your friends are going to win every time. Maybe all your friends are. Mikkel, this is, this is so important. Yeah. We haven't asked this question. Mm -hmm. As parents, as youth pastors, anyone who influences this generation, what do we uniquely have in the Christian faith to offer this generation? It's not entertainment, although entertainment's not bad. It's truth, and I believe it's the grace that comes from knowing Jesus Christ. That's the heart of it. So Christianity is true, and it transforms your life when you understand the grace. Anything else that we base Christianity in apart from those two things yeah. is going to be shallow and not create a lasting faith. Now, this whole word we use, I, I, sometimes we, Sean and I also train uh, apologetic speakers at this thing called Cross-Examine Instructors Academy with Frank Turek. And we... I, it's like I have to help speakers understand that the, the idea of entertaining, to be entertaining, I see the draw, right? Like the magnetism about that, why you might want to see to be entertaining. But we have to kind of change our thinking on that. It's I want to be engaging, not as necessarily entertaining. Hmm. Now, you might, sometimes we miss, those two words can be exchanged in our thinking with young people is that, yeah, I get it. I, 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 there's a sense in which you want, no, I don't want to be entertaining. I want to be engaging which it, I want to grab their attention and help them see why this should matter to them. Now, that's a, a, an aspect of maybe entertainment. Mm -hmm. I don't know. But, but that's really what I think we're talking about when it, when it comes to, like, why would somebody call Sean and to ask his view for their kids? Why would somebody want to buy one of Sean's books for young? Well, why, do we, why does anybody do that? Because they, they, they hope that what you have to offer is somehow engaging and their kids will actually lock on. I write children's books for that reason. A lot of work, to be honest with you. It's a small audience and it's a ton of work. But your sense of it is, is that we, we want to engage this next culture. I don't want to entertain them. But there's an aspect of this, right? There's an, in other words, I can say the same thing and one will sound very academic and the other will sound very accessible. 
And, and I, what I want to do, I've learned a long time ago when I've written so many books now, that, and so has Sean, that if I had a choice, I think accessibility would be my highest priority. Mm-hmm. Especially I for agree. young people. I agree. I'm a big advocate for what I like to call accessible apologetics. Yeah. Hey, is that, is, have, you, have you sales marked that? I bet you have, haven't you? <laughs> My <laughs> curriculum is called that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Accessible apologetics. Accessible, that's a great one, right? It alliterates, it kind of hits it. And now if you haven't got the website already locked in, I'm going to go on GoDaddy right now. I'm going to lock in that website. <laughs> I just add awesome so you have, you know, alliteration and bring back the ages. <laughs> that's it. That's my only advice. There you go. That, that'll preach. That'll be a... Yeah. Anyway, Sean, when we think about Gen Z and how they interact with these information sources, there's a tendency to uh, mistrust authorities and information sources, and they have all so much information coming at them, and they don't know what looks like you know, a legitimate website or just some random tweet or whatever. How do we navigate this as apologists, as Christian leaders in their lives when they're just getting bombarded by all kinds of information and having to sort stuff out? You know, some Gen Zers I talk to, a lot of them tell me that they know how to determine what is real and not better than other generations. And I haven't seen studies on this or not, and it probably depends on the young people, but that's an interesting thought. We assume they don't know how, but they have swam in this water so much, they, my son often sees things that I don't see. Well, I think when it comes to helping them discern truth, a couple things. Number one, when you speak and you write, you got to get your information correct. You have to. I saw this maybe eight or 10 years ago. I was speaking at, a, at one of the Berkeley trips, and these atheists are sitting there with their iPads open, researching the moment I spoke. And if you get something wrong or you overstate it, you lose credibility with this generation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You have to get your information right. Now, we've all made mistakes. I do, and I own it, but I just feel like I've got to do my due diligence and not overstate things. That's right. Second, what I think is interesting is, you know, my father, it's been 40 whatever years ago, wrote Evidence Demands Verdict. The value of that book was that nobody had access to that information at that time. It was novel and blew people away. Well, when he asked me to help him update it about three years ago, one of my first thoughts was like, okay, what's the value of this now? Hmm. Because now there's all these other apologists, you can Google the information. And I came to two conclusions. Number one, if you have a volume that has answers on certain issues and saves time, that's a value. But second, it hit me. I thought, especially today when everybody has a voice, trust is one of the most important commodities that we have. Mm-hmm. And my dad's faithfulness in ministry, people hear his name, they see evidence. And to so many people, they go, you know what? That's a voice I can trust because they feel like they have a relationship with him. So when it comes to this generation, we got to do our homework. But I'm convinced having a relationship with these young people, yeah. like somebody asked me one time, they said, I can't believe you take people to Berkeley, like this is dangerous. I said, you know what? I'm not afraid they're going to listen to this atheist because number one, I'm going to show them the atheist is wrong and his arguments aren't good and they see it on the trip. Mm -hmm. I said, but second, if I build a relationship with these people and they know that I care, they're going to listen to me. So Mm -hmm. I work hard to be involved in the conversation with my kids, regularly talking about stuff. So when they have a question, they don't first Google hopefully they'll come to me. So that is an ongoing yep. perpetual relationship you can't stop having with this generation. Mm-hmm. When I think about this in terms of legal terms, in terms of how we do it in front of juries, it's mm-hmm. evidential modesty. It's that I don't overstate how strong the case is because the defense is going to get a chance to whack at it. Okay, this is a <laughs> 
that they swing at. So I do not overstate the evidence. But I think I've learned as an author, since coming out of the job I worked for, you know, two decades and more, is that, that, that what's, what, what provides you an opportunity to speak to somebody in the form of a book is not anything other than trusted authority. That is the thing that we want to build is trusted authority. This is why I, I, I write in a very limited range. I write from my experience as a detective, and I try to provide you with the detective's experience. Why? Because I know that that is the, where I have an, that's where my authority comes from. I, I know that that's the expertise I have. I don't try to step out of my expertise. I don't try to become the expert. I try to become the detective who helps you evaluate the, the, the evidence from the expert and make a cumulative case from all those experts. Mm-hmm. Well, that's just me trying to stay within my range. I can't stay in your lane. Don't, I, don't stay, I don't jump out of my lane. Parents, the question is, you already have half of the trusted authority in your pocket, especially if you have junior hires or younger, okay? Now, once you get to junior high and high school, it can be a bit of a challenge. But before that, you have the trust of your kids who you have the strongest relationship with. The only trick is when they ask you that question that seems to be a challenge to the Christian worldview, do you have enough information to be able to deliver an answer? You have half the combination. You have the relationship. But do you have the information? So that's why it's important for us as parents to be able to do both of those things. Not to say, well, I have this relationship with you, but here's Jim Wallace's book. Here's Sean McDowell. Really? Okay, I have no relationship with Jim Wallace. And I have no relationship with Sean McDowell. You're my dad or my mom. I'm asking you the question. And they're not, they're not going to say that. But that's just the reality of where they are. Mm-hmm. And so I think we have to be able to... Uh, Did we lose? Did we lose Jim for a second? I think so. He'll he'll in come back in a great back. pose, by the way. A great Offer pose. Them a solution I, to their questions oh. and answer that. Even if it act was it really good? I hope it was as good and entertaining for you as it was. Because I can tell you, I had two great poses while you had one. <laughs> I should have screen captured that. Anyway, the point is, but I think what you, you understand what I'm saying is that what Sean and I have always said in this book, it's this mm-hmm. combination of, and I know that's frustrating for a lot of apologists, Mikhail, because most of us doing apologetics work. We have mastered the answers to certain questions. And in reality, you, you can't, it's not an either or, it's a both and. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when we've been doing these uh, Zoom meetings with youth um, here in, in the Dallas area, every time someone asks a question, we ask a question back and kind of help them Good. unpack it and say, you know, what, why is that something that, that bothers you or what, what's your, your take on that? Yeah. And just allow them to... Uh, because one, we're, we're modeling them, we're modeling for them what we want them to do with their friends. When their friends ask questions about the faith, is to ask them questions and listen and really get that, that read on where they're coming from. Um, I love how relationships has been wrapped around this whole conversation. I think that's really important. With the time that we have left, there's three audiences that I think would, would be really um, interested in this book. One, parents, two, Christian school teachers, and three youth pastors. You have a variety of tips in there for them, but let's just end with this one question for each one of those groups. What are some good ways for them to connect and begin spiritual conversations with these young people? What, what would be one thing for parents that they could do? This one thing to try. One thing I, I would say with parents is the key to this is not to try some new program you didn't do before. So I would say, especially with what's happened with our economy turned upside down and this quarantine issues people have worked through, carve out time together for meals and sit down. 
It's easy to fill that up. It's easy to get busy. And don't sit down with super high expectations like we're going to work through the book of Job or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Just have realistic expectations, Mm -hmm. ask questions, and listen. And I didn't realize at the time, but my dad, when I was growing up, and I do this too, was always looking for uh, stories in the news. And we just sit down and he goes, hey, kids, this is going on. What do you think? Tell me. And he'd ask us questions, and then he'd hear, hear, share what he thought. I thought that's just a great way of maximizing the time to have conversations. Now, if your kids right away don't respond, give it time, work at it, and don't give up. I spend far more time talking to my kids about comic books and basketball, to be honest with you, than deep spiritual conversations. But I seize those moments as Mm -hmm. I can and, uh, and, and make it work, and I know it sticks with them. Yeah. Yeah, let me shift over to youth pastors for a second. I think it's easier as parents. We probably have some sense of what our kids' personalities are, what their struggles are, and what their unvoiced questions may be, at least if we're in touch with our kids. But when you're a youth pastor and you've got 50 students or you've got you know, somewhere that the average youth pastor is probably around 20, you, do, you may not have the kinds of depth of relationship with 20 that a parent has with three. Okay, so I get that. It's a little bit harder. But what you have to do then is kind of craft opportunities to be able to listen to their stories. Now, you can't always do this on a one-on-one. Sometimes you can. But I used to, for example, on Wednesday nights, this is very simple, and probably a thousand million youth pastors do this, but we would have just a a question box or a question hat. Mm -hmm. And we would have people dump in their questions in that hat. And then at least twice a month, we would do nothing but answer. They were not offered anonymously. Now, if if nothing else, it's just going to give you the temperature the kind of inquisitive temperature of the group at large. It's not going to tell you, well, you know, it's, it's Timothy that really has the biggest question over here on this one, one area. Here's where his struggle is. You may not know that. But what we have to do is be intentional about hearing what are the concerns and don't assume you know the concerns. Because, you know, you can find books. We'll say here are the top 10 objections to Christianity, and you can start to do a message series on what some book tells you are the top 10 questions to Christianity mm-hmm. when in fact your youth group may be very different where it's located in the country, what kind of culture you're in. You may have an entirely different set of questions, but have you taken the time to actually hear the questions mm-hmm. from the students? And so I start with that anonymous uh, question hat only because if there are, if you're just starting in the beginning of a semester and this is a relatively new group coming together, then you may not be comfortable asking those questions out loud and you want to offer some cover. So, mm-hmm. so you listen, let them ask that. And sometimes we wouldn't get to that question for two more weeks. Mm-hmm. It would stay in mm-hmm. the hat until we pulled it out. Yeah. So and you that, get at least, but at least it, it begins a process by which you now get a chance to understand what your kids have concerns about. That's right. Yeah. When I was a youth pastor in San Francisco, one of the first assignments I got was to take every kid in the youth group out to lunch. And yep. the pastor's wow. like, I don't care if it takes you more than a year, just, just work on it. You know, just do like five kids a week, just try. And, uh, you know, I was really sick of the the pizza place that was right next to our church, but we started going to different restaurants after a while. But yeah, nothing beats that. Nothing beats that one-on-one and building that yeah. those relationships. Um, Sean, let's go to Christian school teachers to finish this out for, uh, you know, one tip for Christian school okay. teachers. Okay. Since we're talking about Gen Z, let's assume junior high and high school. Mm-hmm. Here's what I encourage teachers to do. Whatever discipline you teach, find a connection between that discipline and the Christian worldview. So my wife actually teaches math at a Christian school. And I send her links all the time. I just saw this discussion online about math, and it was all about why is there this objective structure within the universe that our minds match up with? 
we're not reading structure into the universe, we're actually reading out of it. So I sent her a YouTube video on that. I find articles all the time that actually talks about what are numbers. You can't weigh them. They're not physical. Right. They seem to be spiritual, and yet they're real. What does that tell us about the spiritual realm? Any Christian school teacher, it should be maybe Fridays for five minutes. You can find time if it's important. And what this does is this generation is taught, like previous generations, to compartmentalize their faith to Bible class, to church services, but not see how it affects all areas of life. And to me, the most important task of a Christian educator is, yes, love kids, yes, be excellent in your subject, but show your students how to think about this subject Christianly. Then they make connections in their faith, and you can really develop a Christian worldview. And I would actually encourage people, just like on, on their smartphone, when you find an article, copy and paste it right in the notes section. And just right. keep a running list of simple things and just share it. That's mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. You know, just to give you a weird analogy to this, if you've ever listened to Eric Dickerson, the, the running back for the Rams years ago, and I was a kid, you know, uh, not a kid, but a younger man, uh, Eric was like the best running back in the league, right? Well, he's become what they call the Rambassador, okay? Because he's like the ambassador <laughs> to the Rams. You can have him on any show and talk about any issue. At some point, it's going to ooze out of him is some positive affirmation of the Rams. Huh. That's just who he is, okay? Well, it turns out it's because he's so intensely moved by his experience there and even though he didn't finish his career there, he, he's so moved by it that he's so interested in it. And he knows every coach. He knows the history of all their draft choices. It just spills out of him. Well, I think as, as teachers, as pastors, as parents, it's out of the overflow of the, of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so a lot of it is, are we just so absolutely interested in the things of Christ that, that no matter what we're talking about, eventually something about Jesus is going to come out, right? And it's not going to be this, this fake kind of forced thing, but it's going to be able to, to us to connect the dots between whatever that subject was and the source of all subjects, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Mm -hmm. So to me, it's like, are we so interested that we just can't help but infuse our teaching of math, infuse our teaching of biology with the things of God, right? The same way that if this ambassador can do it, we can be ambassadors too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It seems like it's a lot more significant than the LA Rams. Yeah. Yeah. You know, St. Patrick has this, this prayer that's credited to him that there's a line in it that says, I want Christ to be on the lips of all who speak of me. And wow. I've kind of taken that as a thing for, for my own life, especially being working in historical Jesus studies, um, that, man, what, what I love that. If, you know, anybody yeah. who says Mikhail Del Rosario, the next thing they're going to say is he's talking about Jesus. And so that's, that's something I think we can all do is, is that love for Jesus spills out of us. And also our love for the kids. Right. Um, like you guys say in the book, you know, we love our own kids. That's why I play video games that make me dizzy, you know, um, but we should also love the kids uh, in the church and, and uh, sacrifice for them and prepare that next generation to engage with culture. Well, thank you guys so much for being on the show. Jim, Absolutely. thanks so much. Of course. Thanks for having thanks us. For having us. Yeah, Sean, thanks for being on the show again. It's always good to see you. Always love it. Thank you. All right. And we thank you so much too for joining us on the table. If you have a topic that you'd like us to consider for a future episode, please email us at thetable at dts.edu. We hope we'll see you again next time here on the table where we discuss issues of God and culture. Thanks for listening to the table podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.
This episode was brought to you in part by the Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.